Welcome to the Professionals Podcast, where we explore how upskilling and continuing education can unlock new career possibilities and social impact for adult learners. I'm your host, Luke Cassine, and I'm joined by my co-host, Amanda Gillespie. Hi there. Hi. And as always, we are thrilled to have you join us on this exciting journey. Today, we have a great professor with us, Dr. Sandra Whitehead, who heads up our Sustainable Urban Planning Program. So before we get started, we just have a few questions for you just to get to know you a little bit. First question, if you could travel back in time and make any architectural marvel more sustainable, what would it be and why? That's a really hard one, you know, because I had four years of Latin and and six years of Greek. And so I naturally go back to ancient Rome and ancient Greek whenever I think about architectural marvels. And I don't know that I could improve the Colosseum. Really? Right? It was amazing. It had indoor bathrooms that were sustainably run into cistern where they recycled the water. And they had a moat where they brought in water from the Tiber that raised it up. And they had ship battles. I did not. And then that water went back into the Tiber. And so it was a very easy way to give bread and circus right? Without destroying. I mean, it's in the middle of Rome, right? So it, it, to me, the Romans with their engineering and, and their know-how that they stole from the Greeks, right? And mm-hmm. the Egyptians yeah. lived very sustainably in a very small, compact area, right? For a thousand years. Okay. So I have to say, I lived in Rome. I've been to the Colosseum, went through the tour. Very long line to get in, by the way. And I never heard that part of the story before. Oh, I had a really great Latin teacher in high school. And he would stage battles on this big table. And every day we would come in for Latin and Roman history. And he would have the battles all laid out. And he did bread and circus. And he had a, a coliseum that he flooded and little ships. I mean, it was great. Mr. Schuler's like the best teacher ever. That's amazing. You always it have is. to have one of those in your past, right? Oh, yeah. One of really kind of... Vault you into the next atmosphere of learning. I have a few of those. So now the next time I go to Rome, I'm definitely going to do the tour a little bit differently with what you just shared. Yeah, it's an amazing structure and piece of our culture. Wow. So I have a question for you, Sandra. If you could have dinner with any historical figure from any time, who would it be? Oh, that's easy. Thomas Jefferson. Okay. Right? Okay. He's our first president planner. Mm-hmm. I mean, George Washington to some extent because he was a surveyor, Mm -hmm. right, the namesake of our our university. And he had this vision for Washington, D.C. But I would say what really made it real was Thomas Jefferson, Mm -hmm. right? He was really an urbanist in the the really real sense of the enlightenment kind of um, time. So but he was also this contradiction, right? He he said cities are great and this is where ideas happen, but they're also full of pestilence and you should really have a country home so that you can get away from the city in the summer. Right? So he had all of these conflicting ideas and he was just an idea factory. So I would love to understand him better. And that's a completely different conversation that I would want to have with Mr. Jefferson. So, we may- <laughs> <laughs> yes, but but the, but I think that's part of his contradiction, it right? Really right, it like is. his embrace of slavery, and and yet the way that he treated his his slaves. Mm-hmm. And I think being a UVA grad, there's so many questions that if I were to go back in time that I want to talk to him about is he he is full of a lot of contradiction, but you can question a lot of things that he did and what he achieved. Oh yeah. Yeah. 
But if you go to Poplar Forest, his his house mm-hmm. down um, near, I think it's near Chancellorsville, it is sustainably built. There's, you know, different wings for cooking so that the cooking doesn't make the house hot. I mean, there's just all of these really cool, innovative things that he invented out there with the help of his slave, who was Ms. Ms. Hemings' Mm -hmm. son, Mm -hmm. right? So Jefferson's son. But he was the engineer of the whole place, right? It's an amazing place to visit. So when we think about what you just mentioned about how the Coliseum was built, um, how Mr. Jefferson built his space as well, how has that evolved over time from that time to now? We've decided that we could engineer our spaces better using technology, right, especially with the advent of air conditioning and um, interior ventilation systems where we didn't have to rely on orienting buildings to the wind or away from the sun. We've really used new building materials, new technology like air conditioning and airflow uh, generators, air handlers, to create our interior environments instead of making our environment more in tune with Mm. our real environment, right? Our human habitat doesn't always comport with our human environment, where we're building our towns, and we've used technology to be able to build up, where maybe that isn't always the best idea. But we also have these sealed buildings now. We're not exchanging air with outside. Hmm. So I think this is a good time, actually, to define for our audiences. What is sustainable urban planning? Sustainable urban planning is planning our cities and our towns and our communities, our regions, in a way that we are not just doing no harm, right, to folks who are already here. We're trying to cure the harm that has already been done to them. And then we're trying to build our spaces for people, number one. And number two, in a way that doesn't damage the environment, and the economy for future generations. Is there a city you can point to, or maybe one or two in the U.S., that you would feel is a great model of sustainable urban planning? You know, people always say Portland Mm -hmm. whenever they're asked that question. But I would say... Wait, I'm sorry, before I go on, Portland, Maine or Portland, Oregon? Oh, Portland, Oregon. Okay. Right, like, so, because it's very bikeable, because Mm -hmm. it's very walkable. And I'm like, well... Okay, that's, you know, they, they do some great things, but they also have a lot of urban sprawl, which is not sustainable, right? They're, they're building out further from the urban core. But I think a lot about the downtown area of my hometown, of Pensacola, Florida, and it was laid out by the Spanish in the 1600s around the Central Square, and the street radiate out from Palafox Square, and people and businesses are along this main couple of blocks, And then from there, people live downtown, right? They could walk everywhere. They could get, go to the post office. They could go to a a diner. They could go to the courthouse and pay their their tax bill, right? It's very walkable, that old part of Pensacola. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, thinking about how they live, they're right on the Gulf Coast, and they don't dump their sewage in the the Gulf, as many other communities along there do, right? They have this advanced um, treatment plant. They are taking plastic out of their landfill and recycling it. They're mining their landfill. 
So I think about how it's laid out. I think about some of their sustainable practices. And I think about how they get their clean water, right, which is not pulling it out of the ground. Mm -hmm. It's pulling it from surface water, which is more sustainable. So if we can take a step back, I'm listening to how you describe this field and describing your hometown. What inspired you to go into this line of work? I did not grow up in that part. Of, oh. of Pensacola. My grandmother lived there, so I spent a lot of time there. But I grew up in the northern part of the county, which has a lot of environmental justice challenges. And I watched, we, our farm is between a paper mill, a Solutia plant, which used to be Monsanto, they make chemicals there, and a box plant that makes pasteboard boxes. And so there were a lot of emissions, there's a lot of groundwater pollution, and um, there's a lot of cancer. Mm-hmm. in our part of the county. And I wanted to find out why. And, and as I got into high school and middle school, I was just appalled that, you know, these people have permits from the state. You know, the paper mill was given a permit from the state in 1947 that they could just dump whatever they want in this river. And so I, as I started to study that, I thought, oh, I want to be an ecologist, right? And I got to undergrad, and my first class was ecology, it's like, oh, this isn't the whole story, mm. right? I need sociology. I need, right, I need writing. I need to be able to, to communicate this to people and to figure out, like, how do you stop this? And I met an urban planner in my hometown. This guy came as a guest speaker to one of our classes, and he talked about how the environmental policy comes out of his office. And, you know, and so, of course, I went up there after class, and I said, well, how does one become an urban planner? What does that mean? Right? Like, what do you do? And he told me about the urban planning program at Florida State. Well, it looked fantastic, but their classes were all in the daytime, and there was no way, right? Like, as a first-generation college student, I didn't understand how people could just take loans and just go to school. That scared me to death. My family is not into taking on debt. And so I looked around and I said, oh, the public administration program there at night, I could have a job during the day. And once I got into my job, I could take off and maybe take some of these urban planning classes that I'm really, really interested in. And that's what I did. I studied public policy. I worked for a small town called Perry, Florida, which is about 7,500 people. Mm. It's where Hurricane Adalia just came ashore. Oh, okay. Right? But it was a great job. I got to be the director of development there. And during hunting season, because it is the South, I got to be the acting fire chief, the acting police chief, and, oh the, and the acting city manager. You brought up hurricanes, and that just pivots me to climate change. And how important or do you feel the role of the urban planner is going to be elevated in coming conversations, whether it's five years, 10 years with coast erosion, harder storms coming in, you know, weirder times of, of the year. Like, where do you feel this profession is going to go? I think urban planners have a critical role to play in climate change. It's why climate change is such a, a core part of our program. I think it's the most important thing that we are dealing with. It could be an extinction level event yeah. for us. And urban planners not only plan our communities and our policies that contribute to our readiness to deal with and respond to these 
events, right? Even even the ones that aren't predictable. If we are directing development into our core urban areas instead of out in the green field, urban planners also manage public lands. So if we are managing our forest and our, our wetlands wisely, then we will have more defenses mm-hmm. against climate change. If we are planning barrier island development in such a way that that we are rewilding it so that those barrier islands can block these big storms as much as they used to, then, you know, these are all things that urban planners play a huge role in. Urban planners are also, in many cases, in charge of emergency planning and management at the local level, which is really where the rubber meets the road. So can you talk a little bit more about just how all of these instances impact our curriculum for our students in your program? Climate change, as I said, is a core piece of our curriculum. And a lot of urban planning programs have classes on climate change, but they're electives. Our program builds climate, because we think it's so important, into our core classes. Mm -hmm. We have two core classes that focus specifically on climate change, the science of climate change and planning low-carbon and resilient cities. And whenever students say, well, your program's a little bit longer than other programs at 48 hours, that's my response, Mm -hmm. right? We think this is so important, but it's also woven through all of our other classes. In our principles, which is our theory um, and history of planning class, we talk about the role of urban planners in society and what that has been and what our our role is in social justice and, and making sure that whenever we are planning for disasters, for, you know, conservation, that we are taking care of the people with fewest or no choices first, right? It's, it's that very philosophy that's going to carry us through and make us more climate resilient. We also talk about climate and land use law and what are the cases that have been brought. In the last five years, there have been hundreds and hundreds of cases that have been brought around developing on barrier islands, around developing along the coast, along littoral. And littoral rights, riverine rights, is becoming a much bigger um, litigation issue, as is saltwater intrusion. The state of Louisiana is experiencing the saltwater wedge right now because of the drought further up the Mississippi. Mm -hmm. There's not as much fresh water coming down, Mm. so the Gulf is flowing back up in the Mississippi. Oh, wow. And this is all climate change. That's that's kind of scary. So let me ask you this um, about the curriculum, about your students, the graduates. Do they stay local? Is it more of the network here within the DMV? And if so, what does that work look like? Because we are, we are a microcosm, right? We have Maryland, D.C. with its own issues, and you have Northern Virginia, which is just experiencing complete sprawl. Hopefully it's regulated sprawl. <laughs> but what are your <laughs> thoughts about that? Do your graduates stay local, and what is their impact? Many of them do. I would say about 60% of our graduates stay in the immediate area, with about another 10% being on the East Coast somewhere. Other folks, you know, go various places on the West Coast or into the interior of the, of the country, but most of them do stay around here. Um, we have a large contingent of students who work for federal agencies, for FEMA, for HUD. I think we have four now at US EPA. Um, we have one at Commerce, the Department of Commerce. And 
not just because this is the the policy center of of our country, but because our faculty are so networked in here. Mm. They get federal jobs. We also have um, students who work for large nonprofits. D.C. is the home of about 65,000 national nonprofits. And so our students go there to do research, to do technical assistance, to work directly with communities usually. And then the, the third place that our students go around here are planning consulting companies. Okay. We have two alums and one student who work at AECOM, which is the largest planning consulting company in the world, right here in Arlington, where our classes are. Wow. Did not know that. Yep. Teddy uh, Frodenberg, who graduated in 2021, hired a student and an alum for his team there. And, and our alums are really supportive. They send us job announcements. They hire our students and our graduates. They create internships for our students. And those are easy glide paths into, wow, we really loved your energy and your enthusiasm and all the great things you did as an intern. We've created a job for you. And that happens more frequently than I probably ever find out, right, as the program director. But I view part of my role is to build that community, to build those connections. Um, Dr. Jonason, who teaches our Low Carbon and Resilient Cities class, has brought in four of our alums as guest speakers into her class this semester, right? And that's just one example of how we bring our our local network into the the classroom. We also have um, twice a year, we have alumni student mixers. The one in the fall is at the end of the semester, so we're celebrating. And the one in the spring is always some kind of a a networking event Mm -hmm. that we coordinate with our career services uh, director, Nicole Mentz, who's just fabulous at helping keep us all connected with our alumni. Yeah, we had her on. So it sounds like your network is really just close-knit. And if you could, talk a little bit more about those internships because the Glide Pathway, as you mentioned, that's the dream, right? You know, they're, they know the quality of professional they're getting because they've gone through the, the program, they've graduated. Tell us a little bit more about those internship opportunities. And I know they're not formalized, but Mm -hmm. it sounds like they happen more so in in your program than other programs. A lot of times it'll start out with our LinkedIn group. We have a LinkedIn group for our alumni and our our current students, and someone will post an internship, or they will send it to me and say, hey, do you know a couple students who are looking for this type of job? And so most recently that happened with um, the Department of, of Transportation, I got an email from a contact over there, and he says, oh, we are looking for someone to help with climate assessments around reevaluating. Department of Transportation has this program where they are going into communities that they bifurcated with interstates, and they are taking out the interstate, and they are helping to, to drive change to reconnect those communities. And so they needed someone to help with climate assessments on those kind of projects. And the person, I I sent the gentleman two students' names who were looking for this opportunity, and the person who took the job is traveling all over the country, and she she didn't wind up doing as much of the climate assessment kind of work as she did the community engagement because she was so good at it. 
And she talks with communities and she says, what do you want? What do you want this to look like? How do you want this to be? How do we fix what has been, you know, 60 years of just decimation for your community? And it's really she's doing this with the restorative justice framework as an intern. Wow. Oh, wow. So I think they're going to hire her. I hope so. I really hope so. If you don't, that's a mistake. Thank you for that. You mentioned, you know, just a close-knit community that you've built with your students. And I've had the privilege of going to two Capstone projects, um, presentations, and truly enjoyed it. I think the first one, I was so excited, I kind of dominated a question in the question and answer section. But I was just really excited about it. So can you tell us more about these Capstone projects, how to come to be, and what happens after the presentations? So our students have the opportunity to um, create at least two professional planning products while they're in, in class. There are other, other opportunities. But the formal ones are their studio project, which is their group professional project, which always has a client. This uh, semester, our client is the National Capital Planning Association. Mm. We're working with them on the um, national mall surveys around Beyond Granite. That's our studio class. And then students, at the end of their time with us, create a, another individual professional project, which is their capstone. And capstones can be very research-oriented or they can be very applied. Most of them are applied because we are an applied program in the College of Professional Studies. And so one person who graduated last uh, December, Raven Nee, wrote her capstone on a guide for uh, creating more equitable zoning for your community. And she's going to be presenting that at the National Capital Area um, American Planning Association. Then we also had another student who graduated in the summer. I think you saw his uh, presentation, Luke Robera uh, Tassisa. And um, Robera's was a guidance document for communities in Maryland to create more family-oriented housing around transit. So if you think about what usually happens around transit, it's like these high-rises and they're one-bedroom apartments, and they're not really for families, right? Like where is a family going to live that's close to transit if they don't have a car, right? And, you know, so it was what do communities think about and how should you think about this issue, right? And so how do you plan for it? So those are just two, two examples from this last year. That's amazing. We've talked about sustainable urban planning in the U.S. Can you speak to any of the countries that you feel are really doing it well and are moving the field forward? Yeah, I think the Netherlands is, is really well planned. And part of that is out of necessity, right? Because they've had encroaching seas always. And so they have been very intentional about things like bike lanes and, mm-hmm. and, and curbing their emissions and making sure that they have where they allow new development, it's infill, it's redevelopment, right, in keeping um, the character of, of their communities. And so I think that they, they really, like as a country, they do a good job. I think there are certain cities that do a great job. Copenhagen comes to mind, right? Their bike lanes are not next to highways like ours are. They're off and they're, they're windy, beautiful, and they're, they're built with an eye for scenery, right? It should be pleasurable to ride your bike. Yeah. But you should also be able to go to a destination. And arrive there safe. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. Right? So I do think that there are places that do it really well. And I think Washington, D.C. is is really rising in this area, right, with their new climate plan that they just updated. Um, they have a lot of innovative ideas, and they're trying really hard to connect these disparate plans, their land use plan, their sustainability plan, their energy plan, so that all of these plans comport with each other and talk to each other and really work with the health equity plan. Because all the sustainability stuff that we do, yeah, it saves money and it'll save the planet, but ultimately it's about people. It's about making people safe. It's about giving people economic opportunities so that they can be secure. It's about giving people decent housing. Mm. If we're doing all of this and we're talking about polar bears and you know panda bears, it's it's doesn't resonate with people. You have to talk about human health. You have to talk about our ability to live in certain communities, right? And we have to be brave about these conversations. Since you spoke so passionately about the Coliseum in Rome, I thought you were going to talk about Venice. (laughs) 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 Because I'd love to know just, I mean, every time I read a story about Venice and what they're doing is, I just feel like they're it's a marvel how they're keeping that city afloat, no pun intended. <laughs> it's really sick. It's, it's sinking. Been, it is. Yeah. It's been sinking for a very long time, but this city's still it's thriving. It's doing a lot of things. Just Did you thought. want to buy a house in Venice? Oh, no. No, 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 no. Uh, no offense to my friends in Italy. <laughs> <laughs> so anything else that you'd like to tell our audience about the program and why they should you know, consider the program? We are, as you observed, a very tight-knit community. Um, We have very small classes. You will never sit in a class with more than 15 students in our program. And that gives you a, a huge opportunity not just to bond with your fellow students and your peers, because there is a lot of group work in this program, but also to develop real relationships with your instructors who are professionals working in this field, who bring their colleagues into the classroom and who have this very intimate feel in our classrooms, right? But I think the biggest thing is is that, you know, being in Washington, D.C., when you finish this program, you will have a huge network of over 100 alumni just from our program, Mm -hmm. our larger college alumni, and the GW alumni community that will help connect you in, help you find the best job, that your dream job, I hope, right, and have a decent salary and be able to live a happy, sustainable life. Because I think that this program gives people the tools to make a real difference. It attracts people who want to change the world, and that's what we're going to have to do if we're going to solve climate change, if we're going to be able to continue to live on this planet and not make it worse for the people that come behind us. Thank you for that. And final question. So you've mentioned that the Sustainable Urban Planning and Student Organization have their own podcast. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, it's called SUP GW. <laughs> and it's been around for about three years. And the students have interviewed famous urban planners. Mm-hmm. And most recently, there's one with Andres Dewani, who is the father of new urbanism. There's one with Leticia Atkins, who is a black urbanist here in town. 
and there is one with Kristen Jeffers, which is hilarious. She is a black uh, LGBTQ urbanist, and she she is just amazing. And that one, that episode dropped back in uh, February, so it's out there. Excellent. So how can our listeners find us, uh, these podcasts? We're on Spotify, we're on Apple Books, or wherever else you get your um, podcast. Excellent. Thank you. Well, thank you so much yes. for coming Andrew, today. And just, uh, I, I feel like every time I talk to you, I learn something more. And I appreciate my neighborhood even more because now when I walk around the park in my neighborhood, I start noticing the little things about the thought that the planners put into the area to make it comfortable for us to live there. So it's very much appreciated. Thank you so much for coming today, Dr. Whitehead. We really appreciate your audience. We appreciate your thought process. We appreciate the overview. And thank you for indulging our questions, too, about going back in time. (laughs) Now, we'd love to hear from you all more about what we can do differently, what we can do better. So please feel free to email us at theprofessionals at gwu.edu. You can share any type of feedback about these podcasts, about this episode with us. We hope you continue to listen. We're available on all platforms. We are on Amazon, we're on Spotify, and Apple, and for the Android books, we're on Google Podcasts, too. <laughs> <laughs> Got to get that in there. Absolutely. Thanks, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Sandra. Thanks so much. Thank you.